knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. last chapter we started looking at the amazing life of Joseph and how he was a wonderful example to us and that he's a picture of Christ so much that we see in his life uh, is has a lot of similarities to Jesus but here in chapter 38 we kind of see this break from we just started the story of Joseph he was left in uh, just now in Egypt he was sold as a slave and then we moved to chapter 38 and the focus is no longer on Joseph but on Judah. And Judah's life is really the exact opposite of Joseph's life. And and one of the main reasons and uh, purposes of this chapter is to reveal a biblical truth that we see is that you reap what you sow. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul describes this biblical principle to us in verses 6 and 7. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So the concept of sowing and reaping, it's a farming you know, concept. You sow a certain type of seed, and whatever that seed is, that's going to be the thing that you reap. And so if you sow wheat, then you will only reap wheat. If you sow uh, corn, you'll reap corn. If you sow apples, you'll reap apples. You reap the things that you sow, and you won't reap something that you don't sow. If you sow wheat, you're not going to reap apples or bananas or or anything else. You will only reap that which you sow. But Paul uses this farming concept and says, well, that's true also for our lives. Whatever we sow, we're going to reap. And so he says, hey, in a spiritual sense, this is a good thing. If you sow to spiritual things, then you're also going to reap spiritual things and he throws out there that the best spiritual thing that you and I can reap is everlasting life and so you know if we sow to those things what a wonderful reward we get but there's also the other side the negative side when we sow to the flesh we're going to reap fleshly things and one of the worst fleshly things we can reap is corruption and the Greek word that's used here translated corruption means destruction perishing that which is being corrupted. And it was really used to describe two main things. The first word, uh, way it's described is the kind of ultimate end of destruction, the ultimate end of corruption and perishing, which is hell. Uh, and so we see that side of it. That's kind of where you're headed if you continue down that road. And the second uh, way this word described is the moral decay that comes into a life because of sinful choices. And so when you sow to the flesh, When you do fleshly things, you reap corruption. You reap this moral decay because of sinful choices that you've made. And if you never ultimately get right with Christ, then that's going to lead you to the ultimate corruption, which is hell. So if you and I sow to the flesh, we won't reap spiritual things. 
We can't, you know, do fleshly things and expect some spiritual reward, some blessing from God. We sow to the flesh, we're going to reap the flesh. We sow to the Spirit, we're never going to reap fleshly problems. You sow to the Spirit, you're going to be blessed with spiritual things. Now, the reason I've shared this important truth of sowing and reaping is because that's really the main difference that we see in the life of Judah and the life of Joseph. Both of them are sowing. We're all sowing something. But we're going to see that Judah mainly sows to his flesh, and because of that, reaps corruption. And in the life of Joseph, we see that he mainly sows to spiritual things, and he's blessed, even in all sorts of hardship that are nothing to do of his own. But yet God continues to bless him as he sows to spiritual things. As we look at Judah's life here in chapter 38, we're going to see a progression of corruption. We're going to see that it starts and it continues to grow as he sows to his flesh and then sows more and then sows more. We're going to see this corruption that progresses and the consequences of that progression is going to get worse and worse in his life. And it's really a warning to us because every one of us is prone to corruption. We're prone to sow to our flesh, to give in to fleshly things. And so what we're going to see here in the life of Judah is a warning of these are things that we shouldn't be doing. And the consequences that come you know, should be a clear warning of why we shouldn't want to do this. There's another reason I think that we see this kind of what seems as an interruption in the, the story of Joseph, because really we're going to have, you know, Joseph's story is going to finish out Genesis, and he's in captivity for 22 years, and in that time, we kind of have this backflash. What happens to Judah in those 22 years is here in Genesis 38, and we see this kind of contrast of Judah and what happens with him versus Joseph, but Judah's really kind of a picture of what's happening with the rest of the family. And the thing that we're seeing here with Judah is the corruption in his life because of the surroundings of Canaan, the wickedness, the paganness, the ungodliness, and how it's influencing the family that's left there. Now remember, not only is this story going to be amazing because of how God is going to deliver this family and the world from a great famine because of Joseph in Egypt, but yet the thing we often don't think of is God removes this family from Canaan where they're really corrupted and they're starting to marry other people that they shouldn't and it's starting to really mess their family up, which we're going to see here in this chapter, and he brings them to Egypt. And not only do they go to Egypt, but they're isolated in Egypt. They're in a place where the Egyptians don't intermarry with them. They're kind of just their own people and they start growing. And then they become slaves, but they're still just growing as their own people. And what was becoming this intermarried, intermingled with the pagan lifestyle around them becomes this place where they're isolated just to be what God had called them to be. So there's kind of a twofold thing here we see in this chapter of why God needs to get them out of the promised land for now into Egypt to later bring them back to conquer it. Because right now they're being conquered. They're being conquered through some of the things that we're going to see here in chapter 38. And so it's really not an interruption. It's sharing some very important things. And we're going to see two main themes in this chapter. The first theme is how quickly God's people can become corrupt. And we're definitely going to see that pictured through the progression of corruption in the life of Judah and his family. And the second theme that we're going to see is really the holiness and grace of God. We'll see the holiness of God in his willingness and his you know need to judge sin but also the grace of God in the fact that he gives to people things that they do not deserve 
And so the chapter starts with this progression of Judah's corruption. And we're going to see three things that Judah does that lead to more and more corruption in his life. Um, And so they're a warning that we can take note of. The first thing that we're going to see here is in verse 1. It says this, It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. So we're told it came to pass at that time. The time that it's referring to is now it's taking place right after chapter 37. So chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold to slavery, but actually it really ends with the sons coming to dad and lying to him and dipping Joseph's coat of many colors or tunic into blood and saying, is this your son? And he thinks his son is dead. And so that's kind of how the chapter ends. And so Jacob is grieving. His sons have the audacity to try to help with that. And he says, no, no one's going to help me. I'm going to grieve until I die. Now, Jacob's reaction definitely would have confronted Judah's sin. Because remember, it was Judah's idea to sell his brother. You know, the first idea was, hey, let's kill him. All right, we're all on board. And then Reuben says, no, 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 let's not just not let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. And his plan was, and I'll come back later, rescue him, and give him back to dad. While he's in the pit, Judah says, why kill him? What does that do for us? Let's sell him as a slave, and we can actually get some money from it. And so Judah's plan is the one that they go with, and they sell Joseph as a slave. And so now as he sees his dad just broken from what they did, I'm sure he was confronted with his sin. You know, and when you're confronted with your sin, you kind of can do one of three main things. You can first confess and repent, which is what God wants of us, or you can deny and lie, or you can run and hide. Well, last chapter we saw that Judah and his brothers, they all denied and lied. That They denied that they did anything, and they lied about what they did. You know, they sold their brother as a slave, and they, you know, pretended that, you know, they weren't part of it, and that he was eaten by some wild animal. And so Judah's already responded to his sin by denying it and lying about it. But now we see another sinful response to his sin. He decides to really run and hide. Instead of confessing it, Instead of facing it, instead of coming to his dad and you say, you know what, your son's actually not dead. We sold him as a slave. Instead of you know, owning up to what he did, notice that he distanced himself from his father, who he sinned against. And he also distances himself from his parents, who are really the only ones who would probably you know, call him out and encourage him to deal with his sin properly. And he chooses then to distance himself from them and go and we're going to see dwell with some pagan Canaanites. Now, the most important person that Judah distances himself from is God. And we really haven't seen in his whole life any recognition of a relationship with God, any prayer to God, any time with God. This is something that's been distant in his life pretty much his whole life. But in the midst of this sin, we don't see him you know, having any relationship or any you know, remorse or any repentance before the Lord, before his father who he sinned against, to his brother who he sinned against, with his family. And so he kind of just is distancing himself from everyone. And as he runs away and does this, it brings us to the first warning that I want us to take note of when we think of the progression of corruption in our life, and that's this. Corruption begins when you don't deal properly with your sin and distance yourself from God and His people. You know, so often when we 
sin. The, the, the downward spiral that we deal with is like when I sin against someone, I don't want to go spend time with them. There's that awkwardness because you know, I've just sinned against them. And if I'm not willing to repent of it and deal with it like I should, then I kind of just want to avoid them. I want to avoid that person because you, know, you don't want to be around the person that you've sinned against if you're not willing to address it. And the same is true with God. When I've sinned against the Lord, I'm not like, oh, yeah, I want to go read my Bible and pray that there's something in us. If we're not willing to deal with it properly, if I am willing to deal with it properly, I should want to pray. I should want to confess it. I should want to spend time with God. But when we're not willing to, there's this in us that says, you know, I'm going to avoid and distance myself from God and time with him. I'm going to distance myself from the people that I did this to. And I'm going to distance myself from believers. Because I know if I spend time with God, he's going to convict me of my sin and I'm going to have to deal with it. If I spend time with other believers, if they're godly and they know what's going on in my life, they're going to challenge me to deal with my sin the way that I should. And so, so often, like we see here with Judah, we run and distance ourselves from those that we need to be around the most when we've sinned. You know, the relationship with God is the most essential thing, especially when we've sinned, we need that time with him all the more. We need that time with other believers. And, you know, I see this sad pattern as a pastor. And I see people, you know, they haven't come to church for a while and you call them up and you meet with them and, and you find that, you know, they've just been in sin. And it's like, man, if you would have just come, if you would have come and heard the word and come and got fellowship, you know, we could have helped you deal with this months ago, and you could have saved yourself from all the junk that's continued in your life for all these weeks or months when you haven't been encouraged by the word, encouraged by Christian fellowship. And so, you know, that's the last thing that we need spiritually, but oftentimes one of the first things we do is just kind of isolate ourselves, distance ourselves, and things just get bad for us when that happens. And so the corruption begins oftentimes when we're not willing to properly deal with sin and then when we distance ourselves from God and his people. Well, the second thing that Judah does that continues his progression of corruption is in verses 2 through 6. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when he bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Judah wasn't willing to properly deal with his sin against his brother. He wasn't willing to confess it. He wasn't willing to repent of it. He distances himself from those that would challenge him in that, from God, from his family. He goes and starts living with pagan, ungodly Canaanites. And while he's there, he finds an ungodly Canaanite woman named Shua, and he decides to marry her. And he has three children with this woman, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And his oldest son, Ur, now is old enough to get married. So realize chapter 38 is covering a lot of you know, years all at once. So he gets married, he has three kids. That could have taken a while just in itself. Now Ur, his oldest son, is already old enough to be married. So we're jumping you know, this long stretch of time. And he decides to, in that culture, the father would you know, arrange the marriage. You know, so he's like, all right, son, I'm going to give you a wife. And her name's Tamar. But she also, like Judah's wife, is an ungodly Canaanite. 
And so he chooses to marry an ungodly woman, which he never should have done. And he chooses to do that for his son as well. And Tamar is going to be an important character in this story. Uh, And so we have this start here of corruption continuing as Judah chooses to not just you know, um, distance himself from godly people, but he responds by saying, well, now I'm going to dwell with and I'm going to build relationships with ungodly people. I'm going to marry this ungodly woman. I'm going to have my son marry an ungodly woman. And I'm just going to dwell in this area with ungodly people. The second warning I want us to take note of when it comes to the progression of corruption in our lives is number two, corruption takes root when you engage in ungodly relationships and dwell with ungodly people. Judah decides, hey, I'm gonna, I have no problem with engaging in ungodly relationships, the most significant one in my life, my wife. I'm going to marry this ungodly Canaanite, and I'm going to dwell and live around these ungodly people. Now we're going to see the consequences of this choice. These choices that Judah's making. He's sowing to the flesh, and we know this biblical principle. He's going to reap what he sows. And he might be thinking, oh, what's the big deal of marrying this ungodly woman and giving my son an ungodly woman? And and what's the harm? What's going to come that's going to be negative to me? Well, now he's going to start seeing what he's going to reap. Sow to the flesh, and you're going to reap corruption. Verse 7 through 11, notice what we see. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore the Lord killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Selah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Judah's oldest son, Ur, that he gave a pagan, ungodly wife to, just turned out to be a wicked guy. It's not shocking because look at what Judah chose. He chose to surround himself with and dwell with ungodly people and to give an ungodly wife to his son, and all his son really knew was ungodliness, and he just became a wicked man, and we're not told the wicked things that he did, but just that he was wicked in the sight of God. And because of the wickedness that God saw, God decides, I'm going to take him out. I'm going to kill him. And so God kills Ur. But here's the first example in this chapter of God's holiness. In God's holiness, something we need to recognize is he judges sinners and he disciplines his people. And so often we look at the grace of God and miss his holiness. We look at the grace of God and the love of God and we forget his judgment. And here we see a clear example of God's holiness and judgment coming together in dealing with the wickedness of our sin. And once again, a warning. You know, as we think of, well, why do we care about this progression of corruption in our life? Why should we care about sowing to the flesh? And, you know, I can handle reaping, you know, fleshly things. Well, do we want to reap the judgment of God? Do we want to reap the discipline of God? You know, these are things that we should recognize as believers and say, I don't want that. 
And I realized that sowing into these things ultimately will bring that into my life. So God judges this wicked man. And when Ur dies, Judah tells his second-born son, who is not married yet, Onan, to marry Tamar, which was Ur's wife, and to have a child with her so that Ur can have an heir. Now, what's happening here is very interesting. It's a custom that actually took place uh, during that time. It was called the the Levitrate marriage um, custom, and it's something that God actually instills in the law that's going to happen later on. And we see a lot of that in Genesis of certain things that were happening that later on God actually turns and makes into a law. But I want to read what God says about this law so we can kind of understand what is it that Judah is asking his second-born son to do? Because his first-born son's dead, and now his wife is a a widow, and so he's saying, hey, I want you, second-born son, to marry the wife, that's the widow, to have a child with her, and the child's not going to be your child, it's going to be recognized as your brother's who died. And so let's read in Deuteronomy 25 this law, and we can kind of get an idea of what it is that Judah is asking his son to do and figure out what's going on here, because this is an important part of the story. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, says, If brother dwells together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So God made this law in Israel that if you have a brother and your brother dies and he's married and now his wife is a widow, that it's your responsibility as his brother to marry his wife, to have a son with her, and the firstborn, the first time you have that son, it is going to be recognized as your brother's son. Any other children you have will be recognized as yours, but that first son will be recognized and considered your brother's, not yours. And there were two main reasons for this law. First, so that your brother's name would continue, so it wouldn't be blotted out. So that the, the lineage of your brother, that name, could continue. Because there in Israel, uh, your name was passed on through your son. Just like today, the last name is passed on through the son. And so they didn't want the name to die. And so, hey, the brother needs a name. So when the son's born, it's going to be connected to the brother. And his name and his lineage is going to continue through that son. The second reason for this law was to take care of the brother's wife. Because in that time, there weren't retirement programs except for kids. When you got old, the person who took care of you was your children. That was it. That's how it was designed. And so that's one of the reasons, again, as we talk with the problems of being barren and and how the society saw you. But there was a very practical one. You got no kids when you're old. You got no one to take care of you. Uh, And so that was an issue that was there. And so for the woman who is now a widow... Not only will having a son keep the man who died's name continuing, but it'll be something that is when that son uh, gets older, he can take the responsibility to take care of his mom. Uh, And so, you know, really one of the main things with this law was like, we need to take care of family. God says, you know, family is important and we need to make sure that we're doing that. And we're including in-laws into that. 
Because obviously this is your sister-in-law that you're ultimately doing this for. And I think it's sad when we look at our society, there's definitely a huge attack on family. But in-laws, you know, it's just kind of like they're the enemy. You know, we, we don't want them. And I don't think that's the heart that God would want us to have. I read a story of someone who wrote about the the wisdom of Solomon and kind of taking the story that Solomon does and and putting a little twist onto it. But it addresses this thought that we have often about in-laws. Two women came before wise King Solomon, dragging between them a young man in a three-piece suit. This young doctor agreed to marry my daughter, said the first woman. No, he agreed to marry my daughter, said the second. King Solomon told his servants, Bring my biggest sword and I will cut this doctor in half and I'll give one half to you and one half to you. Sounds good to me, said the first woman. But the other woman said, Oh, sire, don't spill innocent blood. Let the young man marry her daughter. The wise king did not hesitate a moment. The doctor must marry the first woman's daughter, he proclaimed. The crowd was very surprised by the king's decision and says, Wait a minute, she's the one who was willing to have him killed. Indeed, said wise King Solomon, that shows she is the true mother-in-law. We laugh at that joke because there's this attitude that we have of mother-in-laws are the enemy, they're bad, we don't want them, and in-laws are you know, problematic, and you know, that's not the heart of God. And he had a whole law designed to make sure you take care of your sister-in-law. And so it was providing for the widow, providing the name for the dead brother to continue. And that is what is being required here of Judah's second son. But what happens if you don't want to do that? Because that's a big deal. You know, all right, I got to marry a woman that my brother already married. I got to have a son with her, but that son's not going to be my son. You know, what if I have no other sons? You know, there could be those who wouldn't want to do that. So Deuteronomy 25 says, okay, if there's someone who doesn't want to do that, this is what happens. Verse 7, but if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gates to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. So if a brother says, hey, I don't want to do this. Sorry, sorry, sister-in-law, this isn't going to happen. She goes to the elders of the city and she tells them, And the elders of the city bring this young man in and they try to explain to him, you know, the importance of doing this, why he should do this, convincing him of it. And if he still says, no, I'm not doing that. And they say, okay, we're going to bring in your sister-in-law. And this is what's going to happen. She's going to come and she's going to stand in front of you and she's going to remove your sandal and she's going to spit in your face and she's going to say this, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. With that statement, she's basically saying, because you won't take care of me and your brother's name, may God do so to you. 
May that be how God treats you moving forward in the future. It was something to shame him. And then notice, his name now shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. It was something that everyone would now know. Here's someone who wouldn't do this for his family. It would have been something very shameful. And so this was a deterrent. Anyone who's thinking this, don't do it. You want to be spit in your face and have her speak this way of you and everyone think this of you. Well, that's your, you're, you're going to have to deal with that if you choose not to take this law seriously and take care of your sister-in-law. So Judah's asking Onan to marry Tamar, have a son, and that son's name be going to his brother Ur instead of him. So let's go back to chapter 38 and see how he responds to his father's request. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Onan knows, hey, if I have a son with my sister-in-law, it's not going to be mine. And I don't want that. If I'm going to have a son, I want it to be my son. And, you know, remember this family. They're wicked. They're selfish. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't care about continuing the name for his brother. He doesn't care care about his sister-in-law, Tamar. But notice what he does do. Because you're supposed to take this woman, marry her, sleep with her, have a son with her. That son's now going to go be named after your brother, and you're going to take care of her. He doesn't want any of that except one thing. He's willing to sleep with her. Oh, yeah, I'll sleep with her. That's fine. But I'm not going to do anything else. And he makes it so that he won't have any kids. He doesn't get her pregnant purposely. Uh, and the Lord's upset. Oh, you're willing to sleep with her, but you're not willing to actually do what I've asked you to do and get her pregnant, take care of her, allow this son to be your brother's. And so the Lord is very upset with him. And just like his older brother, the Lord kills him. And so now you have Ur and you have Onan both being taken care of by the Lord, and once again we see another part of God's holiness in dealing with sinful people and judging them. Verse 11 tells us this, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Judah has, his first two sons are dead. They've both been married to the same woman, Tamar, and God struck them both dead. He only has one more son. And he's like, all right, Tamar, you go dwell in your father's house and you wait because my youngest isn't old enough yet to be married. But when he does get of age, you can marry him. But that's not really true. That wasn't his plan. He never wanted to do that. He wasn't going to do that. And we can see that even from what he says, because he says, lest he also die like his brothers. I don't want him marrying you. He's putting Tamar as the blame. Everybody that marries you, Tamar, dies. Now, the reality is they died because of their wickedness. God killed them because of their wickedness. It wasn't because of Tamar. It was because of the sinfulness of these men. But it seems that Judah's kind of pushing that on Tamar and thinking, Two dead sons with you. There's no way there's going to be a third. But he tells her that's going to happen. Go live with dad, your father. And when you know my youngest son gets old enough to marry, then I'll give him to you to be married. So Judah and his family now have been suffering the consequences of the progression of corruption in his life. But these consequences, unfortunately, don't stop him. He's going to continue with this progression of corruption. He just lost two sons. 
I mean, surely he should see the wickedness in them and, and the example that he set and the dwelling with these pagan people and ungodly people and how that has influenced his family and, and he's losing his family. But yet that is not going to keep him from this progression of corruption. Well, the third thing that Judah does that continues this progression of corruption is in verses 12 through 19. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, and it was told to Tamar, sorry, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, because she had covered her face. So he turned her by the way and said, Please, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give to you? So she said, Your signet ring, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So now Judah's wife dies. He's lost his first two boys. His wife dies. We're not given the circumstances of that, but she's now dead and he's in mourning and he now leaves to Timnah with his friend Hira to shear some sheep. And Tamar, she hears the news. Hey, Judah's going to Timnah. And she realizes something. Judah has no intention of giving his youngest son to me. Because now his youngest son is of age to be married, and he hasn't done it. And so she realized this is never going to happen. He lied to me. He doesn't have any plan of following through with what he said. And so, you know, she comes up with her own plan of how she's going to get pregnant. Now, before we look at what Tamar does, I want to know that she's in a pretty rough place. In that culture, you know, she didn't have any options of just saying, well, I'll just go find my own husband. You know, I'll just go propose to someone or I'll go start dating someone. She was totally under the control of Judah. Judah had all control of deciding who she would marry and when she would marry. And so she's completely at his you know, mercy in this. And she realizes he's never going to do this. I'm going to be left as a widow for the rest of my life. I'm never going to have a husband. I'm never going to have any children. And she comes to that reality. And now she comes up with a plan because she realizes, man, in this society, this is a huge thing. I'm never going to be married for very long. or other ones died so quickly. And I'm never going to have kids, so no one's going to be able to take care of me when I'm old. And so now she comes up with a sinful plan as to how she's going to get pregnant and have a child. She knows where Judah's headed. He's going to Timnah. And so she takes off this you know, mourning outfit that she has. Obviously, in our day, we wear black. But she then puts on something, and it's specific and it's important to know, she puts on this veil. And the reason it's important to note is because it kind of does two things with her plan. First of all, a veil was something that prostitutes would wear. And second of all, a veil would cover your face because she doesn't want Judah to know who she is. Uh, and so she, she takes off the you know clothes of mourning and she really just kind of puts on this 
prostitute outfit. Um, and then she goes and she puts herself uh, in the road, the open area, heading into Timnah. She knows that's where Judah's going to pass by. And she has a plan to prostitute herself, but it's only to one person, and that is to Judah. And so now we see what takes place here. Uh, well, I want to throw out this. Why come up with this plan? Unless you're confident Judah would sleep with the prostitutes. She recognized something about him because, I mean, it's a crazy plan to come up with. And they're like, I'm going to dress up like a prostitute and try to seduce my father-in-law unless I'm pretty confident father-in-law will sleep with prostitutes. She's probably already seen it. We already see how, you know, messed up he is and sinful he is. And so there's no way that she's thinking this plan's going to work unless she's convinced that Judah would be willing and wanting to sleep with a prostitute to begin with. And so we got, once again, kind of are seeing the corruption in Judah. So Judah comes walking down the road, sees this woman, doesn't know who she is, sees her dressed as a prostitute, and he goes over and he asks her, hey, you know, what is it going to cost ultimately for me to have sex with you? Uh, and so she says, well, what are you going to pay me? And he says, well, I'll give you, you know, a goat from my flock. It's like, oh, you got the goat right here? No, I don't have the goat right here. Okay, well, what are you going to pledge to me so that I can know that you're not just going to walk away and never give me the goat? Uh, and he says, okay, well, what do you want as a pledge? He says, I want three things. I want your signet ring, I want your cord, and I want your staff. And it's very significant that she asks for these three things as part of her plan. The signet ring marked your person, your identity. It had a specific seal on it that was connected to who you are, especially if you were a wealthy man like Judah would have been. So in business, you would stamp your ring into wax or something of that nature. That signet would be on it, and it would be like signing with your signature. Uh, so it was connected to who you are. It, it revealed your personal identity. The cord uh, was either a bracelet or a necklace, usually made out of gold, uh, and it was often just worn to demonstrate you know, your possessions, your wealth, and people who are more wealthy had those. And the staff spoke of your position. It revealed that you were important. And so Tamar is really asking for these things that reveal, hey, that this is something specific to you, your signet ring, which would have been the most important. So your person, your possessions, your position. And Judah says, okay, fine. I'll let you have these three things for sex because he thinks I'm going to get them back. When I give you the goat, we'll exchange it and I'll get these three things back. And so Tamar takes this pledge from Judah, sleeps with him, and we're told that she gets pregnant, which is her plan. That's what she wanted all along because she needed a son. She was hoping that it was going to come from Onan, but he wasn't willing to impregnate her. You know, she realizes she's never going to get married. And so she comes up with this sinful plan and she gets pregnant from her father-in-law, and let's see what happens in verse 20. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where's the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said, there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So Judah doesn't go himself. He sends his friend with the goat to pay you know, for his sex. And he sends her, you know, go find the prostitute, give that to her, and get my three things that I gave as a pledge back. And so this guy comes to the area. He doesn't see any prostitutes. 
goes and talks to the people in the town. Hey, where's the prostitute live that you know, over here? And they're saying, what prostitute? There's no prostitute that's around here. And so he can't find anyone because she doesn't exist because she went back home. And so he has to come back to Judah and say, man, I, I talked to everybody. They said, you know, there's no prostitute. I wasn't able to get your stuff back. You know, I couldn't exchange this goat for your things. And so he's like, well, you know what? She can keep it because we're going to be shamed, you know, if people find out, you know, what took place. So here we see Judah's continuing in his progression of corruption. He's willing to have sex with what he believes is a prostitute. And now having sex with prostitutes was a common thing among the Canaanites where he was dwelling. But you see that he's not only engaging in dwelling with them, but now it's moved to, I'm just going to live the ungodly lifestyle that people around me live. And I think it's interesting that he gives this signet ring, which represents his person, his cord, which represents his possessions, and his staff, which represents his position. And he believes that after committing this sexual sin, he'll get all that stuff back. But he doesn't. He doesn't get any of it back. He loses those things. And I think this is an important warning for us concerning sexual immorality. Like Judah, many people think, you know, I can just have sex. I can engage in that type of behavior and with someone that's not my spouse. And I'm not going to lose anything from it. But the Bible actually makes very clear when we do that, we lose our person, we lose our possessions, and we lose our position. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. When you're in sexual sin, you're giving a part of yourself away. You lose a part of your person. It's not that you can go into that and think, oh, I lose nothing. No, the Bible says you do lose in that. Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon giving wisdom to his son says this, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve, uh, preserve direction and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. So when you commit sexual immorality, it's not that you just give a part of your person, but we also see here that you lose some of your position, some of your possessions. We lose so much in this, and it's so sad when we look at our culture that just promotes more and more sexual immorality and say, oh, you're not going to lose anything. You're just going to gain. It's going to be so great. And it goes completely against what the Word of God teaches us. For one moment of pleasure, Judah gives away his three things that he never gets back. But Tamar, she asked for those three things for a particular reason. She kept them for a particular reason to fulfill her plan. And we're going to see how that fulfills it in verses 24 through 26. And it came to pass after three months, and now three months have gone by since this encounter, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, 
bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who these are, the signets and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. I want you to think about this now. So Judah commits the sexual immorality. So does Tamar. He's thinking he's sleeping with a prostitute, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. Three months go by and he gets some news. Hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she is pregnant by harlotry. She went out and prostituted herself and got pregnant. And can you believe that? And notice the response of Judah to this news. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Burn her alive for this sin that she has done. I think this is very telling of Judah. One, it tells that he understood this was wrong. The fact that he thinks that she should be burned for doing it shows there is a great severity in the actions of what he sees that she did. But yet he did the exact same thing. He doesn't even know at this point in time that he's the father of this child. But yet, hey, she should be burned. He realizes what she did, meaning also what I did, was sinful. He recognizes it's sinful, but notice he doesn't judge himself the way that he judges her. I find it interesting how our sin on someone else always seems to look worse than it does on us. When it's our sin, we're just struggling. We just need help. We just need to be forgiven. When it's someone else's sin, burn them. We saw that with David. David you know, commits adultery. He commits murder. He's called on it by this you know, story about one guy you know, taking someone else's lamb and then eating it. And David says, kill that guy. An extreme response to stealing someone's lamb. And here we see Judah as well. He's guilty of the exact same crime. And he says, burn her to death. Here we see another part of the progression of corruption in Judah's life. He's living like the world around him. He has no problem having sex with a prostitute, but he knows it's wrong. He's willing to judge others, but he's not willing to deal with it in his own life. The third warning I want us to take note of when it comes to the progression of corruption in our life is corruption grows when you live like the ungodly world around you and don't see how wicked your sin is. Well, after Judah says, bring her out, let's burn her to death, she says, well, wait a second. Before you do that, Judah, I just want to send something to you. I have this ring and I have this cord, and I have this staff, and let me just send a message with it. By the man to whom these three things belong, that's how I got pregnant. It's his baby. So let me just share that with you. And so they come to him, and he sees these things, and she says, please determine who these are. Whose signet ring is this? Whose cord is this? Whose staff is this? And obviously, as he looks at them, he sees they're his. And he realizes he is the one who slept with her. He is the one who is also guilty as she. And that's what she's trying to say. Hey, wait a second. You want to burn me? Fine. But there takes two to tango here. I can't get pregnant on my own. Someone else was a part of this. Someone else was sinning with me. And it was the man who owns this. He's just as guilty as I am. And Judah realizes, that's me. And notice what he says. 
She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah my son and then he never knew her or slept with her. He recognizes you've been more righteous than me because he realizes not only did we both sin in me thinking you were a prostitute and you prostituting yourself to me, but I put you in that position. I wouldn't give you my son who I promised you and now you felt like there was nothing else you could do and, and, and you went out and did this crazy thing. But if I would have given you my son, this never would have happened. So, so he realizes he's you know, guilty in two parts. He slept with her, but he also kind of was the reason that she came up with this plan to begin with and tried to get pregnant because he wouldn't do what he was supposed to do and give his son in order to marry her. So the corruption continues. The consequences continue. But you know, this chapter finishes with an amazing example of the grace of God. Well, we see an example after example of reaping what you sow, of God judging sinful people, the holiness of God. You know, but now we end with something that really just kind of blows me away when you think of the, how significant it is. Notice what we're told here in verses 27 through 30. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew it back, his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterwards his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. So here is Tamar. She's pregnant. She finds out she has twins. You know, they didn't have scans of people. You know, once you started, you know, giving birth, you realize, oh, wow, there's more than one. But the midwife is there, and a baby's hand comes out, and she puts a, you know, little scarlet thread on that, and all of a sudden, you know, another the head of the baby, the whole baby comes out, wait, there's no scarlet thread on this one, and they're kind of fighting for who comes out. But the key here that I want to bring out is notice the names of the two children that Tamar has. Father is Judah. They have these kids through this horrible relationship of her pretending to be a prostitute, sleeping with her father-in-law. Perez, Zira, okay? And I want you to see the grace of God as he favors people who definitely do not deserve it. Matthew chapter 1. We have the genealogy of Jesus. We all love genealogies so much, and we've had several genealogies here in Genesis, and I'm sure you don't even read through Matthew chapter 1. And because of that, maybe you have missed these two names. But this is the genealogy of Jesus. So everyone in line of Jesus, the coming Messiah, who was a part of that? Who did God choose to put into the line of Christ? Who were the parents who had children and then grandchildren and then great-grandchildren and all the way to Jesus? Well, Matthew starts it with Abraham and it starts moving. And notice as we read two names that are on this list. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And it continues all the way to Jesus. Think of this. This sinful, horrible relationship these children that are the byproduct of this prostitution and all this wicked scheming, God uses them in the line of Christ. 
I'm sure we would have never chosen them. All right, we're gonna, God's given me the role of who's going to be in the lineage of Jesus. Yeah, that, that, that's not even a choice. I'm surely not going to have people like that in this lineage. But when you go through the whole lineage, you find that there's some other prostitutes like Rahab. There's some other people that are pretty messed up in there. And it just sees God's grace in the midst of all of this stuff. And I love that reality. And we've seen that throughout the lives of these people who are so messed up And yet God is able in his grace and his mercy to use people who are so undeserving of it and to put these kids from the result of what we saw in this chapter in the line of Christ is just a great demonstration of the grace of God. And so here we have a sad and dark chapter of Judah right in the middle of this amazing story of Joseph. And it's such a contrast. We're going to see Joseph being tempted to sin and he runs from it. And here we have Judah looking for it. He's walking, he sees a prostitute. Hey, let's have sex. Very different men, very different choices. One is sowing to his flesh, reaping corruption. One is sowing to the spirit, reaping spiritual blessings from the Lord. And hopefully a warning to us. A warning to us of this biblical principle of what we sow to, we will reap from. And therefore, if we want spiritual things, if we want the blessings of God, which hopefully we do, we need to realize, i got to sow into that. If we don't want the corruption that comes with the flesh, let's sow into it. Let's stop feeding it. Let's stop giving into those things. And let's remember the warning that we see here from the progression of corruption in the life of Judah, that it often begins when we're not willing to deal properly with our sin when we distance ourselves from relationship with God, distance ourselves from fellowship with believers, it takes root when we start to engage in ungodly relationships and dwell with ungodly people, and it continues to grow when we start living like the ungodly world around us, and we don't even recognize anymore how sinful we actually are, and we don't deal with the sin like we should. And since God is holy, as we've seen in this chapter, He judges sinful people, but he also judges his children. He disciplines us. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he loves us as his children. He loves us too much to let us continue in this kind of behavior. And he says, okay, fine. You're going to sow to your flesh? I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to correct you because I want you to change. I want you to become like Jesus. I'm going to continue that work I started. And for you and your rebellion, that means you're going to need a a spiritual spanking. You're going to need some discipline. I'm going to have to do some things in your life in order to get you back where you need to be in your relationship with me. And that's not pleasant. I'm sure all of us have experienced that. And I'm sure many times maybe we don't even realize that God is the one orchestrating some of that stuff to get us back to the place that he wants us to be. But, you know, I'm sure we can look at our life and we can see areas where what we see with Judah, we see with us. Feeding the flesh, sowing to the flesh, the consequences that come, and hopefully just a reminder and a warning as we're seeing the great example of Joseph (laughs) contrasted with the warning of Judah and the rest of the family of don't be like this. Instead, be like this.